0: Let me be honest about the conference industry. You know, this is Duncan's, brutal Simon Cowell, Gordon Ramsay. It needs blown out. You know, think about the first one you went to and the last one you went to. Coffee, orange juice, and croissants from eight thirty till nine o'clock. Coffee's a bit bitter. Oh, croissants a bit sour, and the orange juice is uh, and, the, and the orange juice is sour. Nine till nine fifteen. The sponsors on the stage. But got gone over time, we get the keynote speaker, promises time for Q&A, oh, we ran out of time. We go back to a, a breakout, a networking group, and then the panel of doom. What's the panel of doom? It's four people on an armchair, completely and utterly ignoring everybody in the audience. How do you know? Stand at the back of the room, watch the audience, they're all doing their emails. People always ask me, how do you know if you're successful? If one person brings their phone out while I'm talking, I have failed that individual. It's simple. We go to lunch, it's yesterday, steak, shrimp and chicken, left over from convention services. We go back to a breakout group, usually quite useful, but never long enough. We finish with a beautiful speaker, it bounces up and down a lot, says we love, life is great, and we leave inspired and motivated and pumped and really change the world. And a week later, someone says, hey, how was that conference in Chicago? Yeah, <laughs> great. God, you know, I can't remember anything that's not fair. These people have given you their biggest gift. They've given you the gift of time. We must give them back in something in return.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast from Premier Speakers Bureau, featuring in-depth conversations with the world's most in-demand keynote speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord. Welcome to the Beyond Speaking podcast, uh, your place to learn from some of the world's top speakers, and we have one today. So Duncan is one of the more creative, innovative people you'll ever meet. The short version is he was the head of innovation and creativity at Disney, and Duncan and his team worked with Imagineering, Lucasfilm, Marvel, Pixar, and Disney parks to innovate and create magical new storylines and experiences. He is amazing on how to turn your company into a place of innovation and creativity. He's been quoted basically everywhere uh, and spoken for um, hundreds of companies. I just heard that he did over 200 virtual events in this really cool studio that you see in just the past year. And uh, I have a lot of clients who love him. So Duncan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Beyond Speaking Podcast.
0: Thank you, thanks very much for having me.
1: So what is your favorite picture behind you right now? Like, I love this setup. I love art and Disney and Pixar. What's your favorite picture here?
0: Uh, So, close your eyes all right how many days are there in september 30. okay now think about just for a moment how you knew just think about how you learned that there were 30 days in september i'm going to give you one of three choices did you remember the rhyme 30 days has september blah blah blah, and november all the rest have"? did you put your knuckles together and start put your fist together and start counting your knuckles or did you just close your eyes and see a picture of a candle with the word september and another 30 on it
1: uh Probably closest to the last one. I just remember it's after August, my birthday, and it's short. It's a short month.
0: So when you you can open your eyes. When people ask that, when I ask that question, usually about twenty five percent of the audience remembers it because they heard it. They remember the rhyme for when they were six years old. Twenty five percent of them start going like this: January, February, March. Eh? <laughs> you know like, what? What are you doing? Um, they're kinesthetic learners. They learn by doing. How do you know that? Because they learned that when they were six. But when you ask them how many days they were in September. Fifty percent of your audience remembers it because they saw it. So every single one of my presentations is hand drawn. Every one of them are customised. So, for example, oh here we go. This one, <laughs> this one was for Toyota. That was kind of fun. <laughs> this one I did last week for Mattel. It's me as me as Ken inside the box there.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: This one, you that was for William and Kate's staff, Sandingham Palace. So oh, yeah. Wow because um, and what you'll see is you see people at the end of the talks you know the visual learners in the room what how do you know that because they've got their phones up taking pictures of all of the tools and behaviors because that's how they remember them that's mm. what's visual
1: nice nice well um, you know from this so I'm I'm always I love the origin story how did you first get connected with Disney
0: coffee boy cappuccino led london office 19 19- 86, I used to go and get six cappuccinos a day for my boss, Bar Tally, on D Street. And about three weeks into the role, I was told, you're going to actually, funnily enough, you're going to be the character coordinator at tonight's royal premiere of Who Framed Roger Rabbit in the Presence of Princess of Wales, Diana? I was like, oh, what do I do? They said, well, you just stand up on the stairs and Roger Rabbit will come down the stairs. The princess will greet Roger and she'll go into the auditorium. How could you possibly screw that up? Well, that's the thing I found out what a contingency plan was because I didn't have one. But a contingency plan would tell you if you're going to bring a very tall rabbit with very long feet, on a very large staircase towards the Princess of Wales, he might want to measure the width of the steps first. I didn't. Roger trips on the first day it was now hurtling head over feet like a bullet straight through the air towards Diana's head, whereupon he was taken out in midair by two Royal Protection Officers. They didn't hesitate. They just took him out. There's a very famous picture of Reuters of Roger going backwards through the air like this, two Secret Service heavies looking really mean coming towards him through the air, and a little 21-year-old PR guy from Disney, the back going, I'm fired. <laughs> No, <laughs> so I didn't go to work the next day. I thought oh, okay, I'm fired. So I got a call from the CMO of Disney Art in Los Angeles. I thought oh, I was going to turn me on fire. He goes, "That was great publicity." I was like, "Who knew I could make a career out of this?" <laughs> <laughs> and so for the first twenty years, I did. I got to have some of the more mad, audacious, outrageous ideas for Pixar, Lucasfilms, Marvel. Just a kid in the candy store, basically.
1: What would the what would ten year old Duncan? B, what career moment would 10-year-old Duncan be most proud of?
0: Oh, sending my son's Buzz Lightyear into space, no question. Really?
1: Really? How did that come about?
0: Well, we were... (laughs) It was the opening of Toy Story, and we were looking to have ideas as to how we might get people excited about Toy Story. Um, And so I was talking to the team about the film, and I said, well, by the way, uh, I'll back up a bit. I'm I'm a 60s kid. I was born in black and white television. And cowboys were gods, cowboys run the planet. they were gods. Every little boy and girl wanted to be a cowboy. We all had cherished badges. we kind of walked like this with our plastic pistols and then one day some dude called Neil Armstrong pops out of nowhere, lands on the moon, and overnight, nobody wants to be a cowboy anymore everybody wants to be an astronaut, well, I guess. Guess how this little figure came to life? Uh, that was the story behind Buzz Lightyear, right? So anyway, we were trying to get um, coverage for an excitement for Toy Story, and I said, "Well, what was Buzz Lightyear's dream?" And I said, "Well, it was to fly, right? He couldn't fly when he realized he was a toy. Um, he went up to the top of the stairs, it issued those immortal words to infinity and beyond through himself." I said, "Well, what if we could make Buzz Lightyear? Oh, sorry, shut up, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> what if we could make Buzz Lightyear's dream come true?" And they said, "Well, how are you going to do that?" I said, "We could have sent him into space." Of course, I hadn't actually asked NASA for permission at the time. I used to love the projects that you had a 50-50 chance of pulling off. Those were the ones. That's why you get out of bed, right? So I went off to meet with NASA, and there were about 23 people in the room. It was Washington, DC. and You could see that half the room loved the idea of taking Buzz Lightyear into space, but nobody was going to stick their head out, neck out first and say, I love it. You could see that half the room just wanted to, they didn't want to open the windows. They just wanted to throw me through it. So the head of NASA said, no, we're going to take him. Uh, up to space. I was like, oh my God, you know, they're going to take Buzz Lightyear into space. So about six months before launch, we get a call from Johnson Space Center, which said, um, we need Buzz Lightyear here tomorrow. In fact, we need two identical Buzz years here tomorrow because we're going to take one of them apart, molecule by molecule, because there's an atom inside the plastic that could create a vacuum that might explode in the vacuum of space and inj- injure an astronaut as long like, oh ago. So I was like, okay, fine. Um, so we had to get two Buzz Lightyear's over, but the thing, the challenge was at the time, we didn't have any Buzz Lightyear's for sale. You may remember back in the day, Disney didn't have any Buzz. So I had 34 cast members in Walmart, Kmart, Target, everywhere, trying to find Buzz Lightyear. I thought, don't tell me this deal is going down because I can't find Buzz Lightyear. So we found one. Now don't forget, this was in the days before smartphones. It was still the Motorola Flip, the coolest phone on the planet. <laughs> I, got, I got a phone call, but I couldn't see where it was from. And because uh, we found one, but I was desperate to find the other before the FedEx deadline. And all I heard was two in Philly and beyond. I was like, oh, my God, who is this? And she, it was my wife. She goes, it's me, dear. I said, well, where would you find it? She goes, it's underneath James's bed. It's collecting dust. I said, oh, get it over. <laughs> so, I, I, <laughs> so I wrote James on his foot, just as Andy has written. his on but, uh, Woody's foot all those years ago. And I sent the two Buzz Light years off to Nash. I said, look, don't destroy this one. This is a real little boy's Buzz Light ear. And six months later, we were invited down to the launch. And um, I got quite emotional, I was like, I'm sending my little boy into space. Um, so up goes Buzz Lightyear. And about, I don't know, 18 months later, we were, um, we had to bring Toy Story. Uh, we had to, we were launching another Toy Story. And I said, well, how do you top, you know, sending Buzz Lightyear into space? I said, I'm going to bring him home. Of course, again, I hadn't spoken to NASA about this at the time. So I phoned up the director of comms at NASA. I said, Hey, when are you bringing Buzz Lightyear back? He goes, well, what do you mean bringing Buzz Lightyear back? I said, well, no man left behind, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be kidding. You, you, we, that was never in the contract. I said, "Well, you bring everything home that you take up into space, right?" He goes, "No, I don't." I said, "Well, what do you do with everything you take up?" He goes, "You just open the hatch and you know, push it out the back." I was, oh, "You can't incinerate Buzz Lightyear." In the said, "I'll leak it to the world's press that NASA killed Buzz Lightyear." And so, God bless NASA and the American taxpayer. Thank you. Um, Buzz came home uh, and he landed in. He uh, landed out in. Um, California, because uh, the weather was bad, couldn't land So then, yeah, I don't know if you remember the day those magnificent images of the space shuttle on the back of a seven four seven coming back across the country. Mm-hmm. I've got the actual passenger manifest: seat one A, commander, blah blah blah; seat one B, Astronaut; seat thirty seven A, commander. Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you go to, if you go to the Smithsonian Museum, the Air and Space Museum in Washington D.C., you will find Buzz Lightyear. A little bronze plaque underneath saying uh, courtesy of James Wardle age date.
1: Wow, that is awesome. That's And that's something that obviously you'll never forget. He'll never forget. That, that's pretty amazing. Well, now, now you've got me curious. So I don't know the answer to this question, but you said you love the 50 50s. What's, what's the 50 50 you most regret not getting? Because people love to hear success stories, but they love to hear good, almost success stories too.
0: Easy one, charging by height. So. <laughs> when you ask parents who haven't taken their kids to disney why they haven't gone yet they will say um they'll always say well i want to wait till john is the right age i want to wait till sarah's the right age and when you follow up and say what age is that they never answer you with an age Mm -hmm. five six the answer is always when he's tall enough to ride tall enough to ride at a, a disney theme park is a big enough rite of passage in an american child's life as first bicycle ride first tooth. First day of school. It's iconic. So, um, and I believe that uh, parents wait till that second child is tall enough to ride. So we're losing that, that, that. There's a real opportunity, and innovation is about doing something your competition can't do. Nobody talks about being tall enough to ride at Universal Studios or SeaWorld. And I said, we should charge by height. And I then imagine every bus station, every train station, there's a little, because me- here's the thing, don't ask the consumer to do
1: something they're not already doing. I'll bet, do you have children? Oh, yeah, we got four of them. And right. we did this whole height thing too. Bingo. Close your We're eyes. we currently waiting on it, so yeah. Close your eyes.
0: Where's the height chart in your house? Where are the pencil?
1: Uh, on the door frame.
0: Bingo. Bingo. Every door frame in the United States of America, the consumer's already doing it, right? They're doing little joining little scissors. So all you do is give them a sticker that says tall enough to ride. And every little kid's going to go, mom, mom. So that was probably the more mad one, but everybody, all the Disney execs were like, no, we're not doing
1: it. (laughs) Well, I love it. I'm going to vote for that. If that ever comes out, I'm going to vote for that. Listen to Duncan. Um, So uh, when you work a lot of corporations, so uh, when you bring this back to them, um, you work, you know, with a lot of these big corporations, you have different groups within them that act differently. So Disney um, is really well known, imagining that sort of thing. How does how do you approach creativity differently if you're working with uh, uh, with you know like Lucasfilm or Marvel or Star Wars than you do with Disney?
0: It's not look. Listen, when you walk into a room full of adults, it could be the pharmaceutical industry, the automated industry, the IT industry. The, and say, hands up here who thinks they're creative? Less than five percent of that room is going to put their hand up. I did an experiment at Yale University recently with 3,000 students, all between age 18 and 24. I brought in one first grade class, a little six-year-olds, put them right in the middle, and I said, hands up, who's creative? Me, 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 me. 30 little hands shot straight into the air, nobody else, because by the time we're 18, we've been told we're not creative so many times that we've given up. And so it's not about, I can't walk into a room full of people and say, you're creative because you lose your credibility. But I can get people to stand up and do an exercise together where they prove to themselves they're far more creative than they thought they were. Mm. Look, let me be honest about the conference industry. You know, this is Duncan's brutal, Simon Cowell, Gordon Ramsay. It needs blown up. You know, Think about the first one you went to and the last one you went to. Coffee, orange juice and croissants from 8.30 till 9 o'clock. Coffee's a bit bitter. Oh, the a bit sour and the orange juice is is sour. 9 till 9.15, the sponsor's on the stage, but got gone over time, we get the keynote speaker, promises time for Q&A. Oh, we ran out of time. We go back to a a breakout, a networking group, and then the panel of doom. What's the panel of doom? It's four people on an armchair, completely and utterly ignoring everybody in the audience. How do you know? Stand at the back of the room, watch the audience. They're all doing their emails. People just ask me, how do you know if you're successful? If one person brings their phone out while I'm talking, I have failed that individual. It's simple. We go to lunch, it's yesterday, steak, shrimp and chicken, left over from convention services. We go back to a breakout group, usually quite useful, but never long enough. We finish with a beautiful speaker, who bounces up and down a lot, says we're loved, life is great, and we leave inspired and motivated and pumped and really change the world. And a week later someone says, hey, how was that conference in Chicago? right <laughs>
1: great.
0: God, you know I can't remember anything. That's not fair. These people have given you their biggest gift, they've given you the gift of time. We must give them back something in return. Um, I, people say, why did you leave Disney? Well, I was there 30 years. But there's this gap. There's the gap between the C-suite and the people who have to do the work. The C-suite is particularly in a post-pandemic world, you must innovate. You must take risks. You must be brave. We must think differently. And nobody's showing people how to do it. We train our lawyers, we train our IT team, we train the marketing and sales team, and then we tell people, go innovate. No, (laughs) it's about giving people a toolkit that does three things. It makes innovation more accessible and less intimidating for normal people. Takes creativity and makes it tangible for people who hate ambiguity and gray, and far more importantly, I think, makes the process fun. Give people tools they choose to use when you're not around. That's when you know you're embedding a culture of innovation and creativity into everybody's DNA. How do you get people to accept fun? Ah, so this is this one's easy. Okay, close your eyes. Alright. And this is a word association game. I want you to shout out the first word that pops into your head, providing it's something you can shout out in public. Um <laughs> where are you usually and what are you doing when you get your best ideas? Running. Running. Okay, you can open your eyes. All so right. I did a conference recently of uh, twelve thousand five hundred people in Helsinki. Here's what you'll hear running. Jogging, falling asleep, waking up in the shower, in, uh, on the toilet, uh, gardening, commuting. And then I get them to write it down. 12,500 people. Then I'll ask them, hands up, who wrote down at work? <laughs> <laughs> Bam zero. Yeah. zero, zero percent. Why Why do we never have our best ideas at work? What's the importance of playfulness? Well, close your eyes again. Picture that last verbal argument you in room with somebody, a bit of a shouting match, a bit angry at each other, and you turn to walk away. You're 30 seconds, 60 seconds away from that argument and spontaneously, what just pops into your head? Just you turn to walk away from that argument.
1: <laughs> well, I may be cheating because I just heard this from you talking ah. about it, but the uh, the, the perfect comeback.
0: Yeah, the killer one-liner oh <laughs> if i have said that i'd have had him the perfect line <laughs> but you didn't it always comes just as you walk away why because when you're in an argument your brain is moving at a thousand miles an hour brain in the office emails compliance training weekly reports and i hear myself say "I ah, don't have time to think uh, and yet the split second you gave yourself time to think you stepped in the shower big idea walked away from the argument killer one-liner how do i get on demand by being playful why because playfulness, I'm listening for laughter, because when you hear ourselves say, I don't have time to think, you're in the eight science calls beta, mm-hmm. where the door between your conscious and subconscious brain is firmly closed. When that door is closed, you only have access to 13% of your brain, your conscious brain. The other 87% of your brain, every problem you've ever solved, innovation you've ever seen, uh, industry you've ever worked, is back there to serve as unrelated stimulus. But when the door is shut, you don't have access to it. My job is to help you open it by being playful. The moment I run an energizer, the 60-second exercises, you hear laughter. I know that metaphorically, I've placed you back on the jogging machine, back in the shower where you are when you have your best ideas. That mm-hmm. is the importance of playfulness at the right time. What are some
1: of those uh, – do you have any examples, like success stories, of people that have have adapted that themselves to playfulness and have seen oh, it in the I, industry?
0: I get the nicest notes all the time. Um, it's The leadership team need the creative behaviors because if you don't get the behaviors right, the tools won't work. So I think that the the, you know if you ask people we used to ask why 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 again right it was kids right we're very curious then we go to school and we get told to stop asking why because there's only one right answer Mm -hmm. and yet the insight for innovation comes on the fourth or fifth why not the first one and but our data only goes to the first one so it's about helping people understand what why is curiosity important why is playfulness important if you ask the people developing artificial intelligence uh, what they believe will be the most employable skill sets in the next decade they will tell you that uh, the ones uh, that will be the hardest to program into ai and then you ask them what are those they'll say the ones with which you were born creativity intuition curiosity and imagination will they be programmed one day probably uh anytime anytime soon probably not therefore the most employable skill sets in the next decade are the ones with which we were born we've just forgotten how to use them
1: what are some of those creativity things you're talking about what you're born with uh, so, how do you as a parent, I know your eight year old is, is older now than he was when he had Buzz Lightyear, but what are some of those things that you did with your kids to help them keep raising their hand when they're 10, 12, 15, 18?
0: Yeah, stop asking them, st- stop saying, um, uh, stop asking, don't tell them not to say, ask why, right? Because we always say, because I said so. No, just that. And don't, for God's sake, say, you know, here's the thing. The biggest barriers to innovation are uh, the sorry. The biggest employable skill sets: creativity, imagination, intuition, and uh, curiosity. We were born with all four. By the time you're 18, they're gone. Why? Because the first thing your first grade teacher told you to do was stop asking why because there's one right answer. Shortly thereafter, they told you to color in between the lines. You're like, ah, we are killing our children's innovation and curiosity at a very, very, very early age. And again, you can't tell a room full of adults they're creative. They won't believe you. But if I get them to do an exercise where they prove it to themselves, that could be quite powerful.
1: One of the phrases that you use that I really like is uh, tangible innovation. Can you tell me what that is?
0: Yeah, make it easy. Look, here's an easy one. Hang on, let's get some paper here. So, everybody who listens to us, if you say, do you work in a very heavily regulated industry, everybody will put their hand up and say yes. Okay, and well, what if there was a rule? Again, all the tools are designed to do three things. Uh, simple, powerful, fun. Why are they fun? Because your employees would choose to use them when you're not around. Walt Disney created this one. What if? What if the rules of your industry no longer applied? So, he wanted to have music pumped into the theater. And, whoops, um, other way around. Rules. And what if? He wanted music and heat comes into the theatre during this, uh, the movie and the theatre owner said no Walt. Too expensive. Step 1. Write down the rules of your challenge. I go to a movie theatre, I must sit down, I must be quiet, it is dark, I must pay to get in. Uh, I, Walt, cannot control the environment, so he started to write down the rules of the industry. Then you pick one, each chose environment, and he said what if I could control the environment. Step one, list is the rule. Step two, pick one and ask the most provocative what-if question. He said, what if I could control the environment? Well, he couldn't, he didn't own the movie theatre, so he said, "Right then. What if I take my movies out of the theatre? Well, don't be stupid, Walt, they're two-dimensional, they'll fall over. Huh, what if I made them three-dimensional? How you can do that, Walt? Well, what if I just had people dressed in costume as cowboys and princesses? Yeah, but Walt, you can't have Cinderella standing next to Jack Sparrow, people wouldn't be immersed in her story. What if I put them all in a different theme land? Oh wait a minute! What if I call it Disneyland? We're done here. <laughs> uh, it, it created Netflix. Um, it's, it's a very again simple, powerful.
1: Wow! And is that is that a process you've used in some other different projects? Oh yeah,
0: yeah. I've used it for yeah. I mean, it's, look, you walk it. So um, okay, 2016. We'd already seen Ebola, we'd seen H1N1, we'd seen SARS. And I said, hey, what if one of these pandemics goes global? What if we had to close our theme parks? What if we had to dock our ships? What if we had to, uh, what if nobody could go to movie theaters? So we turned around the rules and said, well, what if we went to the consumer? Now, hands up who has Disney Plus at home. Yeah. we About 50% of the people watching today Well now multiply that by hmm, planet Earth. Yeah, it's doing okay. Like
1: <laughs> wow. So that that kind of leads me into that. Uh, But what's the difference between fresh thinking and disruptive ideas? I know those are uh, two other things you talk about that I, I found pretty interesting.
0: The challenge for all of us is the more experience, the more expertise we have, the deeper, the faster, and the wider is our river of thinking, how you think and how I think. And we're both really good at that. But we are both, along with everybody else, being asked to stop thinking like this and think like this. Because in a post-pandemic world, we're not going back to business as usual. We must go back to business as unusual. So my job is to help people stop thinking like that and give them a new set of tools that gives them permission to think like this.
1: Mm. Yeah, I like that. That's that is that is good. It's a lot of what you said is about permission. Like I think so. So often people feel like they don't have that permission to be able to to think like that, to act like that. Yeah. And that that's it's really. We ask, our yeah,
0: we ask our employees to be brave, right? But we don't give them the tools to do the job. Right, we, have, we train as I mentioned. We train the lawyers, we train the finance. People, but we don't train people to innovate. The soldier with a gun will invariably be a lot braver than the soldier without a gun, right? Because you've the tools to do the job. So again, it's about giving people a toolkit that makes innovation less, more accessible, creativity tangible, and the most important part is the process fun. You cannot embed a culture of innovation into everybody's DNA unless they enjoy using it when you're not
1: around. What is a, what's a naive expert? I see that behind you there over your shoulder. Uh, what oh, is a naive expert?
0: They are, they're the people who don't know what you're working on. You invite them in because they don't know what you're working on. That gives them permission. Well, what can they do that you can't? Well, they're not going to solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. But they'll ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask. They will throw out the audacious idea ungoverned by your river of thinking. Stop you thinking the way you always do and give you permission to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, I- I guess I'm a huge believer in diversity. If somebody doesn't look like you, they don't think like you. If they don't think like you, total shock. They can help you think differently.
1: Mm. What are some ideas or some ways that you've used diversity in in your leadership positions at Disney?
0: Uh, Well, I had a Chinese chef come into a room where we were trying to design a new Right uh, retail dining and entertainment complex for Shanghai Disney, and by not thinking as an architect, she completely got us to completely think differently about a particular thing we were going to build. Or by reframing the challenge, by not asking how might we make more money, reframe it as how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point. We came up with one of the biggest single revenue, idea, revenue generating ideas Disney's ever created. Um, I also think, you know, Product experience, Walt was the master of experience. Walt understood experience first. Companies are just beginning to understand it, but let me put it in very basic and easy terms. How much would you give me for that? Uh, A buck, dollar What if it came from Tatooine, what would you pay for it?
1: (laughs) Probably more, especially like that. Take it home.
0: Same product. Yep. Product experience. I can charge eight to eight times more for that. Wow. So, um, this plastic stick that you see before me, sir. Oh, you wouldn't give me two cents for a plastic stick, sir. This is Dumbledore's wand. Would you like to buy cloak? I mean, Universal Studios—they've got it as well, right? A Coca-Cola, seventy-five cents. But to you, sir, it's a butterbeer. Would you like to see the new mug? Have a nice day. <laughs> um, and and the companies that—and here's the thing: augmented reality right in the next three to five years is going to blow past virtual reality because VR isn't good enough yet. Will it get there? Of course it's going to get there, right? Um, vi- augmented reality, right? Physical place at the conference industry, right? Well, yeah, okay. Well, we go to a conference room. Yeah, okay. That's really boring. If you want it to snow in your conference room next Christmas without spending a hundred million dollars you'll be able to because if we're all wearing the same pair of glasses it'll snow in that room because it'll if you a you i don't know if you're a red wine drinker are you familiar Not with too so much
1: but i i know a little bit
0: next time you go into your supermarket hold your phone up to the bottle called 19 crimes and watch this little man peel himself out of the label come jumping out and start talking to you uh, and if you ask people did you buy the wine or the experience i bought the experience of course you did the mm-hmm. wine's crap um <laughs> Augmented reality in the next three to five years will turn physical supermarkets, retail stores, etc., and allow them to create fully immersive experiences. Why is this so important? Because Generation Z are not buying products and services. They're buying the experiences. And augmented reality will enable us to, so for example, you don't think Disney's probably already thinking about working with McDonald's on virtual Tinkerbell, popping out of your Happy Meal three years from now in Portuguese and saying happy birthday to your daughter, if that's her favorite character? Of course they are. Oh, um, cool. yeah, you know. Then you put VR, AR, AI. Oof. I'm walking down the street. Three years from now, I'm in a shopping mall. Couldn't get that shirt in the size I wanted on Amazon, but I've signed up for notifications. This store sees I'm 600 feet away, pings me a message to my right lens and says, hey, we've got this shirt in your size. Click once to come in and pick it up. The cash register it prepaid, click twice, we'll send it to your house. That technology actually it already exists. It's called Disney's Magic Band. Um but it'll be inside our lenses in three years from now.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Uh, we, we work with a lot of different companies, international audiences, international companies, um, sort of building on the story of, of uh, you know, Disney in Beijing. Um, what are some of the lessons you've learned adapting to different cultures? You know, how do you adapt customer experience to different cultures?
0: Yeah, you've got to understand the culture. Um, you know, but I, I can, so, uh, what, two years ago, I was flying into Copenhagen in Denmark uh, to speak to 3,000 people. I landed, the Danish prime minister said, not so fast, Sunny. we're not doing any more live events, COVID is here. So I spoke to 3,000 empty chairs and a camera for me, mm, it's a bit free. Um, so I came back here, ripped out this studio, of bedroom, turned it into a studio. I can now speak in 37 different languages simultaneously through an artificial intelligence robot, subtitles live onto your screen. And with this little sucker, I'm now doing virtual workshops where you could be in Johannesburg and you could walk right up to me today with your virtual pen and your virtual hand and pass it to me, with, which doesn't exist, right? I take it out of your virtual hand with my virtual hand, right on a virtual post-it a virtual link that doesn't exist, and pass it back to you. Um, but that doesn't answer your question. Um, it's look, consumer insights. I think for most of us, we get too far, as we grow up the executive chain, we get too far removed from our consumer. And simply, by the way, by simply take one of the things, I, we don't have time to do it today, but by simply going and spending a day in 26 consumers' houses in Europe back in there about five, six years ago, came up with the single biggest revenue-generating idea Disney had ever created by finding an insight in their living room that you could never have found in your data. The challenge for our... And by the way, you don't think your competition has the same data as you do? Of course they do. So it's about how to teach people, look for insights where your competition can't look. Um, but it's now mandatory for every Disney executive to spend one day a year serving popcorn or cleaning the streets in the Disney parks. And one day a year in the living room of one of our consumers. Um, that, And I think it's... I, Making people into consumer insight junkies, I think, is quite important. Uh, However, at its deepest, most basic root, mums and dads want the same thing for their children around the world, right? They want to create magical experiences for them while they're still growing up. And Disney does that on on multiple planes around the world.
1: Mm. Who, uh, you know, top four, who are your um, all-time, Matt Rushmore, top four, most innovative people that you look up to?
0: Richard Branson, Richard Branson, Richard Branson, Richard Branson, Um, (laughs) you never never hear, you never, when was the last time you ever wrote an article, read an article that said CEO of Virgin Enterprises? Mm. Yeah, Mr. Branson, never, it's always Richard, because he believes in, and again, it's not right for every uh, company, uh, but it is right for the vast majority and I think most of the companies have got it wrong I don't necessarily attune to customer first I actually think it's employee first and particularly obviously in the industries in which he works if you get your employee right and look after them they're the ones who spend eight hours a day with your guests mm-hmm. so you love- guess you know so I, and I just I like his whole approach he's a people person and he also he doesn't rely solely on data. Uh, he relies a lot on intuition around his ideas and by the way, you have 120 billion neurons here you have 120 million neurons here. It's your second brain, the brain with which you say you make most of your decisions when you went with your gut. And I think Richard does that a lot. He, but here's the other thing he's taught me. Um, don't be afraid to fail. Think about the amount of industries uh, that, he, that Richard's launched that don't exist anymore. Virgin Cola, virgin weddings, virgin I think virgin but yet you still he's still considered. An incredible entrepreneur, uh, but again, he also does what I what I talked about: make it easy, make it simple, make it fun. Virgin is one of the most elastic brands on the planet, right? They've done condoms, they've done space travel, and everything in between. Therefore, how does Virgin decide what new products and services to bring to market? Well, he just created something called, I think he called it Stargazer. I use it a lot. Um, It's about taking the subjectivity out of the decision making process and allowing us to make some very objective decisions. So let's say you're working with 37 new products and services you could bring to market. Um, Let's just say for today's argument, is this idea a strategic brand fit? Is this aligned with who we stand for as a company? Is this idea embedded in consumer truth? So today this product has to be relevant to a 21 to 24 years. Can I in fact get this product into market in the next 18 to 24 months? That might be a goal. I may have a fiscal goal. I may want it to be very socially engaging and get the uh, people on social media to talk about it. And all you do when you've finished with your, all your new ideas, is you have a conversation and ask yourself, how well does this idea do? Does it do a poor job, a good job, or an outstanding job aligning with our brand? Idea number two. It does a pretty good job. Uh, Is it going to help us meet our fiscal goals? Does a pretty good job. Is it socially engaging? Not at all. Can I get in the market in the next 18 to 24 months? Not a chance. Is it embedded in consumer rights? Insight. Hell yes. And the further out you go from the center, the more it meets with your objectives. And all you do is you go around with your final ideas, idea number 17, and you have that conversation for each of those final ideas. And eventually, one of those ideas will rise to the top as to meeting your success criteria the most, not the one the boss likes.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for sharing these insights and uh, and just making an impact on so many people in the events industry and elsewhere. So thank you for doing that. And thanks for being a guest here on the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. To learn more about today's guests, visit premierespeakers.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen.